Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And we've reached chapter 40 on page 421. And the chapter heading is in the northwest. I ask for patience. Sometimes I trip over my words. But let's enjoy the words of Joseph Smith III. Enjoy. The subheading is Castle Rock. I had an invitation from the branch at Castle Rock to spend a day or two with them. To that place we repaired on September 6th, leaving our eldest son, R.C., with his Aunt Mabel, who stayed on at Tacoma a few days to visit an old friend. At Castle Rock we were met by Brother George Appleman, who took us to his mountain farm. There for a time we fairly revelled in an abundance of fine fruit, grapes, plums, pears, peaches and apples. His hospitality was received with thankfulness. His were home-loving people who gave us an honesty and hearty welcome. Who gave us an honest and hearty welcome. Brother Appleman secured the use of a church, Methodist I think, in which I occupied once, with a fair audience and to the expressed gratification of the members of the branch. One citizen, a prominent businessman, came to call on me. He said he was present at our meeting, was well pleased with what he had heard and felt friendly to our people. This statement was confirmed by Brother Appleman. Near the village is a stone formation on a bluff, which from one point of view resembles a castle of very large proportions. This furnished the railroad people with a name for the town. It was located on a little river which had been made navigable. But at the time of our visit, an account of low water, the steamer that was supposed to ply the stream could not approach with some miles of the landing of the t- at the town. One day I took a walk with my small son Wallace. We crossed the river on the suspension bridge and returned by ferry. A little excursion we both enjoyed. I had anticipated that at Castle Rock I should be met with a rather disagreeable duty connected with a case of church procedure, the consideration of which, from what knowledge I had gleaned of it, I feared would prove very obnoxious to me. A member of Independence had been found guilty of a very grave crime against the virtue of his own family, was prosecuted and had the hand of fellowship withdrawn from him. Later he went to the northwest and there, in some way, was received into fellowship and his office restored by local authorities. The matter was reported to Brother Joseph Luff, then in charge of the area, and under his administration the man was severely censured and again disfellowshipped. It was said that when I went to Castle Rock this man expected to appeal to me present his plea and ask for reinstatement. This was the unpleasant task I was mentally prepared to face upon the occasion of this visit. He had secured the friendship of a local member, a man of French extraction, at whose house I called to meet the brother in disgrace. Whether or not he had calculated to make the appeal anticipated, I am not at all I'm not at liberty to say. I know he presented himself at the house, and we passed some little time together, but in no way did he mention his case to me. Whether he thought from my demeanour that such a course would be useless, or for some other reason changed his mind, I do not know, but I surmise he concluded to let the matter rest, and I was not disturbed 
by his presenting his case. Apparently, he had not emerged from under the shadow of wrongdoing, for soon after my visit, he induced the good old French brother mentioned to permit him to marry the latter's granddaughter, a child not yet arrived at maturity. We held services at Castle Rock on Wednesday and Thursday evenings, Brother Pender and wife joining in our labours of ministry. On September 8th, in company with this same pair, we left the village and went to Portland. We had been directed to a brother by the name of I.A. Simpson, whom we finally located after some difficulty since he had lately moved. We learned that we were to go to the home of Mr. C.A. Patton, a relative of Ruth Lyman Cobb, wife of my son, Frederick M., they had written ahead and bespoken for us this kind hospitality. We were given we were given a very pleasant home there during our stay and during our stay in and about the city. Mr Patton was a busy man and we saw but little of him, but his mother and wife seemed quite interested in us and solicitous for our comfort. Next head in Montart Villa. Soon after our arrival, Brother Griffiths came to us and we proceeded to Montaigne Villa, a little station on the trolley line east, where our conference and reunion were to be held. The settlement was in plain view of Mount Hood and was in a wide slope of the valley to the south with a plain line on the north and east. Woodward Hall was secured for the conference. It had been erected for public meetings, but after a few years the hopes of the builders seemed unrealised, for the enterprise was not a paying investment. One portion of the building was occupied by a small store where groceries, food and the ordinary notions kept in a little stock were to be had. Upon the suggestion of Brother Griffiths, he and we concluded to provide for our own needs by clubbing together in which project we were joined by Bishop's agent, Watson Fordham, and Brethren Appleman, Condit, Pend, and others, a sort of cooperative arrangement. We were permitted to move into and take possession of a home belonging to Sister Johnson, where rooms were assigned to us and provision made for our comfortable habitation during the reunion. Mabel and the lad R.C. followed us in a day or two and added much life to our impromptu household. We all enjoyed the novelty of this situation. The commission, the commissary was very commendable throughout the sessions. Everyone had suitable shelter and the meetings at Montevilla and the simultaneous ones held in the city of Portland kept us all very busy. Elders Johnson, Holloway, Sparlin, Sheldon, Eng and Chapman were among the large coterie of ministers in attendance. As far as the feelings of the saints of the locality were concerned, this effort was very successful and productive of much good and spiritual encouragement. However, the little town was five miles from the city. It was rather sparsely settled. There were several rainy days and the attendance from non-members was not very marked. In justice to them, I may state that the town was largely settled by people whose business was in the city and they were returned home so late at night that they had not time to dress and come to the services. The church work at Portland 
was in charge of brother Marcus H. Cook, and through his active interest meetings were held at that point, as well as at the reunion. The services in the city were fairly well attended and our efforts well received. The ride on the trolley from Montevilla to Portland was very beautiful, the scenery sublimely grand. I never tired of looking at it. At this time, I met a number of wealthy men who had become acquainted with our work previously and expressed themselves pleased with the sermons they heard. We also met a sincere family from the country by the name of Coop, husband, wife and four children, who presented themselves one day and gave a bag of nuts to our children. We were well pleased with the naive simplicity of this family, their family offering and the faith they possessed and cherished. The routine of one day at the reunion was interrupted by our youngest straying from us and being lost for two or three hours. Finally, one of the family found him and he was returned safely. But we learned to know what anxiety parents can feel upon such occasions. Two instances mark the nature of our work. A woman who had been a member of the church was living with her daughter, married to a labouring man with Catholic tendencies. This man was intensely opposed to Protestants and especially to Mormons, as he called us. The mother was decrepit and quite ill, and one day sent for the elders requesting administration. Brother N.C.N.G. and Brother Chapman complied, but were very illly received by the man of the house who threatened them with bodily injury if they did not get off the premises at once. The brethren reasoned with them for a time, but found it of no avail and had to depart, leaving the poor old sister without the help and consolation of the ordinance she had desired. Elder M. V. Sheldon, appointed by the general conference to that field, had attempted to labour to some extent, but not meeting with the success he had anticipated, had become discouraged and homesick. He came to me and announced that he was going home. I talked with him a little and tried to cheer him, but apparently without success, for he left the encampment. Greatly to my surprise, greatly to my surprise and pleasure, he put in his appearance two or three days later, somewhat chagrined and quite humble. We received him happily, his good nature and courage were restored, and he continued his labours in the field. One time there came to the hall a Mrs. Mary McGregor, whom I had known when she was a maiden in Nauvoo. She was now the wife of Robert Roy McGregor, of whom I may have written before. He had acquired some wealth, and she was essentially a woman of the world. Learning I was in the city, she could not be satisfied without coming to see me. She gave me an invitation to bring my family and visit her and break bread with her, but conditions did not, commit, did not permit us this pleasure. Next headline. Next uh, section heading. Portland Fair. During the time of this reunion session at Montevilla, the state fair at Portland was in progress. We took two days off to visit it. One of the days was pretty rainy, and we had the further misfortune about lunchtime of having our six-year-old get lost in the crowd. A rather frantic search was begun, in which brethren Griffiths, Chapburn, Holloway and other friends, besides local police, joined. It was ascertained that... 
He had not passed out of the gates, and we felt somewhat reassured. Our anxiety was at last relieved when Brother Griffiths found him. He was in charge of one of the fair officials, and recognising Griffiths, had said excitedly, There is one of my folks now. I will not attempt to describe all we saw at this fair, which interested us, but may mention a few things. One was an exhibit of the United States pineries, showing how logs are filled, handled by electricity and the trans and transported down the streams. We were impressed with the marvellous display of fine woods from the northwest. The exhibit arranged to show their varying widths, grains, susceptibility of fine finish and the enormous height to which some of the trees grew. We took lunch in a room, the table of which was made of one log, nearly 150 feet long. It was of nearly equal width from end to end, an interesting specimen indeed. We saw also a flagpole 225 feet high, a single tree without break, bend or splice. There was a baby contest on which our hostess, Mrs. Patton, insisted we should enter our baby Reginald. A simple entrance card and a souvenir of some sort were presented by the committee to each child entered, but the whole affair was poorly managed, for about 200 babies and their attendants were packed into rooms so badly crowded the conditions were quite intolerable and the attempt was considered a failure. One day at the fair was designated Missouri Day, we took advantage of the opportunity to hear an address by Governor Falk of that state and to attend the reception given in his honour in the hall afterward. It proved to be a well-managed affair and one we all enjoyed. As Chatsburn and I entered together, I met upon the steps an old-time Lamoni citizen named William Williams, then in the insurance business there. He greeted me quite cordially, feeling as I did that it was strange to meet thus far from the old home. On one of the days we visited the fair, a shower came up and we stepped into an open booth to escape a drenching. The arcade contained a number of catchpenny devices, such as games of chance and machines, for testing strength or skill. One of these was a device for measuring the force of blows struck by individuals with a heavy hammer or sledge while waiting for the shower to pass. Brethren, Griffiths, Chapburn, Holloway and others amused themselves with this machine each in turn. Then Griffiths proposed I should try my hand at it. I had never trained as an athlete, even in my youth, and had never struck such a machine or otherwise tried scientifically to measure the strength of my muscles. I demurred at first, but they insisted, Brother Griffiths generously offering to supply the needed pennies. I consented and stepped step into the machine, placed myself in proper position and struck a blow with the sledgehammer. Brother Griffiths, watching the indicator, burst out with £820. Nonsense, exclaimed Chapman, moving forward to verify this announcement. It is useless to try to describe the astonishment of my brethren. A gentleman who had been standing near moved over and said, What's that? And then with a curious glance at me, asked, How old are you? 73 next November. 
Well, well, remarkable. I've hung about this machine now for five or six days and watched hundreds of people measure their strength on it. But that is um, the hardest blow I've ever seen struck yet. The faces of my brethren showed a comical mixture of disgust at their own efforts and admiration of mine. The whole affair passed off with many a laugh and chuckle and has no doubt long since vanished from the memories of those present. As for me, I could scarcely understand it myself. The incident has caused me considerable reflection as I have tried to determine what it was that had caused me to develop so unconsciously the muscles of arms and chest. Having been raised near the river and being accustomed to rowing may have had something to do with it. Too, I always liked chopping and sawing wood, which activity, combined with those usual on the farm, pitching hay, mowing grass, swinging the scythe, had no doubt helped to train and harden my muscles. This was always without conscious effort and intent on my part, for I had never burdened myself with thinking I must definitely develop myself physically or train for any specific test of strength or endurance. These observations rather confirm the thought I had carried since my youth, viz. that any form of exercise that had no sensible, laudable objects in view was distasteful to me. Those mechanical stunts that athletes go through in an attempt to train their muscles always seemed useless to me, for I felt they could be developed and strengthened by spending energy along more useful channels. On this occasion, I was quite warmly congratulated over delivering the heaviest blow of our little company. There were placards about that machine showing the weights of the blows struck by various pugilists. Fitzsimmons at 900, Jeffrey's a little higher, as I recall, and one other, £1,100. As I thought the matter over, I concluded that comparisons are indeed odious, and never since then have I sought to challenge a slot machine in an attempt to break my own record, or that of others, being content in this particular to be classed with has-beens. All human experiences have an end, and these, and there came one to this day at Montevilla, and the home of our kind friends in Portland. Among the many friends who entertained us might be mentioned Brother Keeler and wife, Sister Johnson, the Cooks and the Coopers. It was the morning of September 19th when we left Portland, bound via Pocatello for Salt Lake City. On the station platform at the latter place, as we changed cars, we met Brother David Williams from Bozeman, Montana. With his family, he was en route home from a visit to the Portland Fair and with relatives in the West. Next heading, in Utah's capital. We reached Salt Lake City at midnight on the 20th, being received by my son Frederick M. and by ta him taken to his home, which was then temporarily in that city of the saints. We were well prepared to enjoy the good night's rest there. Counselling with my son, it was deemed advisable for me to stay in the city some weeks for the purpose of preaching and to pursue a course of some rather extensive visiting among our own people and different prominent men whose acquaintance Fred had made. Some of these latter 
had avowed themselves favourably impressed with the movement that occupied the centre of our interests, but we were of the opinion that possibly most of their expressed confidence was an outgrowth of speculation as to how far our religious attitudes and our people might be enlisted in their private political schemes. The group called the New Party was at that time zealous in its efforts to overcome the powerful church interests dominant in the city, an influence declared to be wielded by the hierarchy composed of 15 men, first presidency and apostles, which formed the head of the Utah church. Some of the interviews and visits that followed this decision of ours I will here record as being of more or less interest and bearing. I will begin with some of our contacts with J with F. J. Cannon, Pligamous son of George Q. Cannon. This man had been thrown over by the leading church authorities for the reason that his aspirations for political office had brought him into opposition to their wishes. He had been senator, having apparently attained the office through the influence of the church during the balmy days of the rule of his father. Later moved by the dislike of President Joseph F. Smith, the influence of his brethren began an active opposition to him. Even his father took sides against him and allowed himself to be named a candidate for the same office the son desired. Naturally, this caused the younger man to become strongly embittered and thoroughly disgusted with the whole organisation. Recognising him as one of the political powers in the affairs of the state, I was glad to meet him. It was arranged that we should lunch with him at the leading hotel of the city. There we met him, attended by, Joe, by Thomas J. Kearns, a former senator, and enjoyed a long and interesting conversation with them over Utah conditions in general. I admired Mr. Cannon because he was a talented and well-informed man and because in his antagonism against the oppressive hierarchy there, he had turned his back upon Mormonism, as upheld by the Utah Mormon Church, had condemned the whole institution in no uncertain terms and had signalised his opposition to his father by bitterly and publicly denouncing the course pursued by that parent and the church authorities. Although my father had in Utah the reputation of having been the active mover in the introduction of the dogma and practice of celestial or plural marriage, which had grown into such a deplorable offence in the valley, I had publicly taken up arms against it as a principle which I believed to be false, in direct violation of true and accepted doctrines of the church, and strangely demoralising to those who practised it. Therefore, I was in a position to admire the courage of the man who, though bred and reared in the shadow of its evil, had taken up an offensive warfare against it. All these considerations moved me to wish to make him his acquaintance and to enjoy meeting and conversing with him. He had attained a considerable following politically in what was known as the American Party. Notwithstanding this support, he lost out for the legislature when the will of the community was finally expressed at the polls. Next heading, an interesting luncheon. It was through his management, I believe, that my son and I received an invitation to lunch at the home of Senator Kearns on September the 28th. 
Others present on that occasion were Colonel Wall, Colonel Wood, Dr. Padden, Dr. Keith and Messrs. Cannon and H.G. Macmillan. Of these, it might incidentally be mentioned that Dr. Keith deemed or seemed to be the centre of the strong political effort being made to defeat the church faction in electing a senator. Colonel Wall was a moving power in the political arena. Macmillan was a wealthy mine owner, merchant and banker. Dr. Padden was pastor of the Methodist Episcopal Church and Colonel Wood was also an active politician. These five men were fair representatives of the temper and political tone of the wealthy businessmen of the city. It has been it has ever been of keen interest to me to meet and study various individual types of men. Our host seemed rather of the order of the newly rich, having made considerable money as a miner. He had been sent to Congress through an upheaval in the state and was wielding considerable influence because of his wealth. Macmillan was a bluff, hearty, affable and friendly Scotsman. For uh, some reason, he became very friendly to Frederick M. and myself, even to the extent later of contributing rather liberally in a financial way to our cause and doing us the honour of calling with his wife at the home of my son, extending to us kindly social greetings. He was associated with Dr. Keith in some way, I believe. Mr. Padden, the Methodist pastor, was apparently a liberal-minded man, professing to grant unto others such religious privileges as he claimed for himself. However, in the generous conversation at the table, I thought I discovered in his comments an undercurrent that convinced me that this toleration was more seeming than real. Be that as it may, he was not outspoken in his aversion for me and my associates, as had been the case with Reverend McNeese on that occasion in 1889, when, at a hurrah meeting in the Methodist Church on the 4th of July, the latter gentleman turned his back on me. Thinking about that luncheon, I was convinced that the most plausible explanation for our being invited was that these men desired to measure our calibers as individuals and leaders with a view of ascertaining what possible value to them our people might become in their general political movements. Most of them were schemers, as I believe, representative of a certain considerable strata in political society and were apparently more or less under the tutelage of Senator Kearns and F.J. Cannon. From, the from this classification might possibly be exempted Messrs. Macmillan and Keith, though they did give nominal support to the common objective, if nothing more. I think I have no reason to revise the opinions I then formed. At the conclusion of the meal, our host showed us through his home, one of the best appointed I ever saw. It was a veritable mansion, magnificently built throughout, the rooms were very large, substantially and handsomely finished, and furnished with the finest of a material and equipment. 
In the basement were rooms and mechanical apparatus for athletics for his two sons. Would it be possible, do you think, for a man situated as I, labouring as I had for many years in a project remarkably foreign to ideas of accumulating wealth, to avoid some reflections upon the great contrast so evident between the condition of material prosperity and luxurious comfort in the surroundings of Senator Kearns and that of my own home. I think not, and I feel no apologies needed for my pondering them as I traverse the spacious halls and apartments of that magnificent dwelling. I may even be excused for reflecting that if there is any value in the adage, Virtue is its own reward. I might possibly claim some such spiritual reward as being more desirable in the long run than the rewards which had attended, in this temporal expression, the career of Thomas J. Kearns, ex-senator. With these thoughts came the further one of the masters, saying, Verily, they have their reward referring to those who received abundantly of the material blessings for which they had striven. I found some satisfactions in considering that my life, as it had been free from the constant turmoil that attends public service of the nature he had rendered, and that those many annoyances which grow out of the petty jealousies and prejudices of political controversy or develop through ambitious desires, for preeminence and preferment in positions of power had been spared me. Ugly elementary struggles with which I knew our host must long have been familiar. Meeting afterwards some of these men with whom we had that day eaten salt, I was greeted with apparent cordiality. Once in passing down Main Street, I encountered Senator Kearns chatting with two others. As I approached, I noticed his quick glance of recognition and regard. Turning, he greeted me warmly and introduced his companions. He took pains to tell them just who I was and added some favourable comments on the work I was trying to do. I did not meet him again. I recall I met Reverend Padden once after that luncheon and he also seemed cordial and friendly. One interview I had with Mr Cannon occurred at his rooms in the Tribune building the point from which he was directing the campaign activities of his party some others were present and i was asked a number of questions of a quasi-political nature which i answered without particular concern as to what the result might be i remembered a rather sharp conversation i once had with c c goodwin and colonel nelson former editors of the tribune when I was visiting their office for a specific purpose and they invited me to use their columns to report conditions I found in passing through the territory. The contrast between their attitude then and that which I encountered at this time was quite striking, as I thought, and I was made to realise that neither I nor the cause I was defending had suffered in reputation and standing during the years that had intervened. It was gratifying to me to reflect that, in all the controversies into which I had been drawn, I had not become embittered, nor had I made bitter enemies. I had walked freely about the streets of their city, met many people, spoken often in public, 
sometimes in buildings not our own, and through it all was left at liberty and untrammeled in my actions and movements. My cousin, President Joseph F. Smith, on the contrary, had been dodging the United States Marshals for something like seven years, avoiding arrest for his acts committed under his championship of a false doctrine, which a rather contemptible legislative measure called misdemeanours instead of felonies. Again, I was brought to recall the words, virtue has its own rewards, which in this case spelled for me freedom in conscience and personal violation, volition, if nothing more. The next heading, The Cousin's Call. When my cousin John Smith, patriarch, heard of our arrival in the city, he came to visit us. We also had the pleasure of meeting him at table in his home one evening. Cousins John Henry, Alvin and wife, brother Watson, Frederick M and wife Ruth all being guests in addition to my own little family. It proved to be a very pleasant gathering, one in marked contrast to the semi-political one at the hour of Senator Kearns. Notwithstanding my cousin's office in the Utah church, he was not living in polygamy. He had never shown any distrust or dislike toward me, nor, to my knowledge, expressed contempt or violent opposition to the positions in faith and doctrine which the reorganised church occupied and I championed. His door had always been open to me, and his wife and children, as far as I knew them, had always received me kindly and cordially as one worthy of kinship. One of his sons once made a singular remark in my presence. It was in his father's house when the young man was engaged in copying some blessing his father had given to one of the faith. Turning aside with a mischievous wink at me, the young fellow said, Father, this man must have paid you pretty well for this blessing. It is such a long one. To which Sally, his father, had chidingly replied, Tut, tut, no remarks, sir. The young man resumed his writing, giving me a glance out of the corner of his eye, which I was left to interpret, interpret either as, as an expression of his sense of humour or of his having some doubts as to the celestial character of origin or origin of his father's official blessings. The only two sons of John whom I knew were Alvin and Joseph. His daughter Lucy I knew pretty well, as she lived near him and was often present when I visited there. It was a great pleasure to me, to me at this time to be privileged to introduce to these kindly relatives and the guests assembled in their home my wife and three small sons, as well as my son Frederick and his family. At the time of this visit to Salt Lake, my cousin Samuel was living near John. I learned that he and his wife Julia were in rather reduced circumstances, a condition of want instead of plenty, as had been the case of my earlier visits. He could not entertain me as he used to do, but notwithstanding that, when he found I was in the city, he came at once. To see me. Upon one occasion, 
learning that John Henry and George Albert were calling on me at my son's, he came also bareheaded and barefooted for the purpose of meeting me in their presence. I was glad to see him, of course, knowing well his lifelong regard for me, based on old and tried friendship. From their manner, however, I could see that John Henry and George Albert considered him to be a little off mental balance. This opinion, I am obliged to confess, appeared to be well-founded and quite accurate. The long struggle with poverty and ill-treatment had finally broken down his courage and self-respect following his mental poise was disturbed. He had not been able to conceal the degradation he felt by conditions out there, but though inclined to rebel against them, he had not seemed able to oppose them in that manly, forcible and efficient way which might have freed him from the entanglements he secretively despised. He, he secretly despised. He had some grievance against the leading authorities there too, of a personal and financial nature, which did not tend to give him a calm, poised outlook on life. John Henry's son, George Albert, brought his carriage and took us all for a pleasant ride through the city and environs. We visited the locality to the east as far as Camp Douglas and returned through the fashionable residence portion. He pointed out different places of note and interest, was very amiable and showed us extreme courtesy and consideration. It was pleasing to me to understand that notwithstanding his father was a polygamist, he was not at least in practice. He was in failing health at the time and later came very near the divining, the dividing line that borders on the other world, but rallied, partially attained good health and is still living, active in the offices and labours of his church. He has always been a very friendly, of a very friendly nature. Before leaving the city, wife and I gave him a call and like his father, he usually calls on us when he comes to independence. Through the kindness of Joseph B., one of Samuel's sons, Frederick and I had supper one evening with him and his family. Very much to our surprise, Joseph had invited also his father, mother and one sister be, to be present with us at the table. The atmosphere upon this occasion was somewhat strained, to say the least, and not very roseate in hue as may be conceived when I stated that the father had been divorced by the mother. I do not recall ever seeing a man in a situation of more constraint and embarrassment than that occupied by Samuel upon that occasion. He sat at my left, his former wife at his, and though she and their daughter showed deference to him and cheerfully tried to make him feel at ease, and the occasion pleasant, the poor man ate with tears, at times stealing down his cheeks and lips trembling in spite of himself. It was evident that it was with difficulty he presented anything like composure during the evening. Later we walked together out to the little trolley station and had a long conversation as we waited in the moonlight for our car. While I may, may, while I may be permitted to state that the tone of this conversation was interesting and illuminating to me, it would be a breach of good taste and friendship for me to reveal the nature of his confidences or 
record any portion of them here. From their tenor, my son and I could not fail to gather the fact that had it been possible for him to reverse the procession of the years that had passed and live them over again, he would have made them a far different history for himself. Since this was impossible, it was only left for him to so stoically acknowledge that what he had done was done and could not then be remedied, nor its results avoided. This was the last opportunity I had of socially meeting my cousin Samuel and his former legal wife Mary. I'm going to leave that there and carry on in the next episode. Thank you for listening.